we were coming home and COVID hit and our pewter business, which is basically souvenirs, went down to nothing. They shut the town down. I looked at Wendy and says, you know what? It's going to be a long summer. This would be a perfect opportunity for us to restore the ski hill. So we jumped in with both feet and <laughs> went at it. Yeah. And to say that we did it as a family is a huge accomplishment. Like we did this, guys. Look what we did. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Got a great story for you today about a ski area that was dormant for 25 years and the people who brought it back from the grave. First thing, I'm going to ask you to pop over to stormskiing.com and to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. The podcast is an important part of the storm, but it is only part of it. The core of this whole operation is the email newsletter where I explore the world of lift-served skiing all year long. I have to tell you, June is going to be huge in the world of skiing megapasses. Like, multiple regions are going to be redefined by what's dropping out there. And because I am locked in with the people who manage all the major passes, I am going to have full breakdowns of all those developments ready for you the second they are announced. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. All right, let's talk about Mountain Gazette. Have you subscribed yet? If not, why not? I'm telling you, having this thing on your coffee table is going to change your whole day. Let me tell you about Mountain Gazette 197, which is heading to your mailbox in the coming weeks. The spring 2022 issue is going to be stuffed with the kind of picks and stories you will not find anywhere else. Here's what I mean. The new issue features a stunning photo gallery of outdoor culture in Kiev, Ukraine before the Russian invasion. There is a story about mountain town soccer prospects and a photo gallery by the one and only Jimmy Chin Yes, that's right, the Oscar Award winner makes his Mountain Gazette debut in issue 197. Plus, long-form stories about skiing, about the Jackson Hole backcountry, about biking, whitewater rafting, climbing, and much more. If you think print is dead, you are wrong. The only way to reserve a copy is to subscribe. Go to mountaingazette.com to lock in your subscription today. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 87, TJ and Wendy Kersher, owners of Paul Bunyan Ski Area, Wisconsin. There are a lot of ski areas in America. 473 were in operation during the 2021 to 22 ski season, according to statistics just released by the National Ski Areas Association. Wisconsin alone has 31 active ski areas, tied with Colorado for third most of any state behind Michigan and New York. But there are far, far more lost ski areas than active ones. 97 in Wisconsin alone, according to the Midwest Lost Ski Areas Project. Once a ski area closes, it almost never reopens. But once in a while, you get a good story. Some of these are huge news, like the reopening of Saddleback up in Maine, 
back in 2020. Some of them creep up on us, like the low-key reopening of Kuchara, Colorado, which we will hopefully see this coming winter. But today, I want to talk about one that is really off the radar. In 2020, inspired by COVID lockdowns that brought their other businesses to a halt, the Cursor family walked into their backyard and began clearing trails and fixing up lifts for little Paul Bunyan Ski Area, a 150 vertical foot bump that had been closed since 1995. Once they got the 60-year-old lift spinning again, they found an eager reception from an ecstatic community, thrilled to have their little scaria back. Two seasons in, and they are bursting at the seams, ready to expand, and firmly rooted again in Wisconsin ski culture. Today, they're going to tell us exactly how they did it. Let's go. My guests today are the owners of Paul Bunyan Ski Area in Lakewood, Wisconsin. Paul Bunyan has one T-bar and two rope toes, serving six runs on 150 vertical feet. In 2020, they brought the ski area back to life 25 years after it had closed. TJ and Wendy Kirscher are my guests. TJ, Wendy, welcome to the storm. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing today? Oh, we're doing excellent. Glad to be here. Same here. I'm excited for this. This was a long time coming for my husband, so I'm excited for this. Amazing. So glad to have you here. Let's start with season two of Paul Bunyan's Scariest Comeback. How did the 2021 to 22 ski season go for you? Uh, it was excellent. We had very, very good skier turnout um, for both day skiing and night skiing. Well, that was a lot of fun. So I really want to get into the ski area in a little bit, but let's go back here first of all. It's really interesting that this is a family operation. How did the two of you meet? Uh, we met at a beach uh, in Lakewood on Wheeler Lake. Uh, he grew up there and I was on the beach and we met and we've never been apart since. <laughs> How long ago was that? Uh, Probably like 88, 1988, 1989. Oh, wow. So so who, who approached who? Well, I think he approached me. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was it like the uh you like had one of your buddies hit the volleyball over toward her beach towel one of those kind of things <laughs> no i just happened to walk down to the beach and she was uh sitting in a, uh, sitting in a chair suntanning i just kind of walked up to her and talked to her beautiful the, the old-fashioned way not meeting on the phones like the kids do these days yeah, right? i know exactly <laughs> so so you met in 1988 been together ever since um and, and you had two kids tell us about your kids um our oldest son tj um First of all, we have great kids and they're very helpful. We've always owned our own businesses, so they've worked with us all the time. And when TJ told the boys uh, we're going to redo the ski hill, they jumped right in and helped. They're great kids. One owns an excavating company and one owns a concrete company. Oh, terrific. And what are your side businesses or, or, or businesses? Right. Our main business is we manufacture um, figurines and we supply like the gift shops and the state gift shops and uh, museums, and it's been in the family for 50 years. So, And, and we also run a, a – the Ski Hill Bar has been open since 2004. Oh, that's cool. So is so is all that run at one location? Yes, it is. It's all ran here on the property of the Ski Hill. Oh, wow. So so do you, and do you live there as well? Yes, we do. That's amazing. That's a, that's a great setup. You can't beat that commute. So so the, the figurines, who started that business? Uh, my father actually started it in 1975. Oh, cool. And what kind of what kind of figurines are we talking about? Um, we have twenty five hundred different items we manufacture. Any all wildlife and 
to wild, you know, to Dungeon and Dragon stuff to and our stuff basically ends up in uh, like souvenirs in, in uh, shops across the country. We supply over six hundred different uh, gift shops. Oh, that's really neat. How many how many folks do you have working at your factory there? Uh right now there's four of us. Oh wow, just four of you, and you do all that. Yes, we do. We can mass produce, and we have machines and stuff. So, oh, that's that's really cool. And then, um, and then the bar. What what inspired you to start the bar? Um, back in the let's see, the early like 2004, we started the Lakewood Country Fest on the hill, and we had some major national acts like the Oak Ridge Boys and oh, cool. Andy Griggs and John Anderson, Joe Diffie, and there was a lot of them. And we're having those events, and we I don't know, it kind of went hand in hand with that. My wife Wendy, she ran, she runs it. And so, what did you you did you build a new building, or was that the old Skiria Base Lodge? What what do you where is the bar? Uh, it's at the old ski area base lodge. Um, oh, cool. What, what happened was the ski hill, when I acquired it, the building had caved in and we turned the upper level into our house. Oh, and no the way. lower level was turned into, well, it was our house out for a while and that was turned into the bar. Okay. <laughs> so so uh, is it basically a locals hangout at this point? Yes, it is. Very much so. This is very popular locals hangout. That's that's super interesting. I uh, I live in New York City and for a time I lived above a bar and and it was there was always some late nights. So do you do you still live above the bar and and, and hear the uh, the rowdy crowd at two a.m. or or have you have you, did you say you moved outside of the bar? No, we still live above, but our our clientele is more of the older local people, and we're usually closed by nine o'clock. Oh, beautiful. So so it, let's talk about skiing here a little bit. Did have you always been a ski family? Did you all grow up skiing? Yeah, I grew up skiing. Well, I I, grew, I started when I was in the sixth grade. I started skiing. Mm-hmm. At, at Paul Bunyan. I learned how to ski right here at Paul Bunyan. That's beautiful. How about you, Wendy? I didn't learn how to ski until about my freshman year, and it was also at Paul Bunyan. Okay. And and were you able to ski around a little bit, or was that was that good enough? You were there, and, and that's where you centered your skiing at? Uh, no, I traveled. I skied most of the state of Wisconsin and Mich- upper Michigan, and I did a little bit of Colorado skiing, too. Nice. Uh, what, were your, what places stood out to you? Um, well, locally here, I used to ski a lot of Whitecap. Rule stuff was close. And when we held west, we always go to Breckenridge. Beautiful. How about the boys? Uh, did they grow up skiing? Actually, no. They grew up on a closed down ski hill, and surprisingly, we didn't ski that back then. But um, they did a lot of dirt biking. They raced motocross and a lot of snowmobiling. So when did they do they ski now? Yes, they do. And when when did they, did they start? When you opened Paul Bunyan? No, they actually started skiing before that. They started skiing uh, in their high school days. And where did they go? Uh, Nordic Mountain. There's a lot of skiing at Nordic Mountain. And then at the time when Norway was open, we went to Norway. Yeah. Yeah. No, Norway is, uh, is that your next project? That one's been closed down for a while. <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually good friends with the people that operate it or that, you know, that were part of it, you know, but no, we're not the next project. <laughs> All right. So, so lay this out for us. When did Paul Bunyan as a ski hill first open? And then when did it come into the Cursor family? Um, the ski hill was originally designed by the local town folks as a way to get for tourism. And they started a project in 1960. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe it was like 1962 before they got it open, right around there. Mm-hmm. And it operated as a nonprofit through the Lakewood Mardi Gras Association all the way up until 1985. And then they went bankrupt. And my father actually purchased on sealed bids mm-hmm. in 1986. Mm-hmm. And what, what made your father, what inspired him? To buy the ski area, um, I'm not exactly sure at the point, at the moment. He was um, he owned a pizza place and also owned the the pewter business, and he was just kind of an entrepreneur. He just had, kind of did a lot of different things and ended up buying the ski hill. 
So what was it like growing up with that sort of mentality and a family that had this entrepreneurial spirit within them? Did, did you always know that you would be a business owner one day? Uh, yes, I did. I grew up working with my dad since young and he was always dabbling in different types of businesses. And yeah, I just, it's, been, it's kind of in my blood. And Wendy, what was your upbringing like? Did you did you see yourself as a business owner? Um, I mean, not when I was younger, but once I met TJ, yes, I knew that's what our our life would be if we were together. And what's that like, just being your own boss and, and kind of setting your own terms? And you know, obviously, it comes with with some responsibility as well. Like you have to own everything. But you know, what what is what kind of freedom comes with that life? How do you enjoy that life? I love it. Um, we can take off when we want, but we also have to work very hard. I like being able to walk out of my home and go to work, not get in the car and drive. I love doing it together with TJ. So, so you're, so you're watching your father run this ski hill and, and TJ, you, you said you were a skier before that. What, you know, if you met Wendy in 1988, I'm assuming in 1986, you were a little older, teenager at least. Uh, what was, what was your reaction when your father bought Paul Bunyan? Um, actually, I was a senior in high school when he purchased it. I was very excited because um, I had skied here. I had season passes here. And at the time, I was an avid skier and really excited. And I actually ended up, my father ran the pewter business and he was gone in the winters. So he purchased a ski hill. So at the age of 18, I was the manager of Paul Bunyan's ski hill. Oh, no way. Oh, wow. You know, so I, I pretty much ran it. And then Wendy came into the picture and she helped me. So me and her pretty much ran this place from 1986. No, after, I was already running when I met her, but. Well, she came into the picture later, but then I reran it until 1995 when it closed down. Wow, that's that's amazing. So, how did you how did you learn how to run a ski area? You know, when I when I talked to Rick Schmitz, who bought nearby Nordic Mountain, which you mentioned earlier, he said he was 22 and it was his first time working in a ski business, and he really learned from the folks who were already there operating it, and and he really had to just sit back and listen for a while. Did you have a similar process, or how did you approach? learning how to run a ski area it's not easy um yeah kind of a little similar i just was kind of jumped into it both feet and um it was closed down i didn't really have an operating ski hill for someone to like help me go with it mm. and yeah. i just kind of winged it at first you know and fortunately one of my good friends worked in the snowmaking department at ski brew at the time and he was instrumental in helping me get the snowmaking going the rest of it we just kind of went along as we learned as we went so give us a tutorial here on the particular particularities of Paul Bunyan, because every ski area is a little bit different and it has its quirks and has its specific challenges. So the ski areas to your north, for example, Whitecap and Powderhorn and Big Snow, they get a lot of snow, right? But they have trouble attracting people. And then some areas farther south, like Granite Peak is a great big hill, but it doesn't get so much natural snow. So just talk about Paul Bunyan and, and what your particular challenges are with, with making that a functioning ski area. Um, well, as far as uh, as far as snow, we're on the bottom end of where the snow line kind of is in Wisconsin a lot. Mm, um, but yeah. we do have snowmaking. And being that it's a small hill, it's a lot easier to cover because we don't have as many acreages to cover. Mm. You know, so that works out pretty well for us there. Um, as far as the public and the population, Lake was a, a very tourist town. Between Lakewood and Townsend in the area, there's a lot of cabin owners. I pay probably 80% of the places up here are cabin owners. So there's a, actually an influx of people every single weekend in this area. So that's our, our target audience is the real close local cabin owners and the local people, obviously. Wow. So so it sounds like you have a good built-in customer base. And, 
and you ran it from 1986 till I think you said 1995 when it closed. Why did Paul Bunyan close in the mid nineties? Um, well, it was the, my, it was my father's decision. I didn't want him to do it, but it was just making it, you know, and his other businesses were going good and doing, doing that. And he didn't really want to put the money into it to continue it on. And I think times were different back then, as far as in this area, anyway, the tourism wasn't like it is today. So there wasn't as many people up here. And how did you feel about the hill closing? I I really wanted him to keep it open. We, you know, I thought it was just, should stay open. I wanted him to keep it open. And actually, we actually for the following summer, we tried getting it to be a county park, saying kind of similar to Kettlebone. Mm. We spoke with the county, okay. and they were all kind of on board. We got working with them, but they wanted me to run it. So I was kind of well, you know, and I'm, I'm glad it didn't go through now because I wouldn't have the place. But and, and Wendy, how did you feel about it? Um, I was kind of sad that it closed, but we were just starting our lives and getting married and thinking about starting a family. So, I mean, everything happened for a reason, I thought. But I'm glad that it happened that way and we came back this way, I guess. So, you know, it's it's right in your backyard. So obviously there's no out of sight, out of mind. Was it always kicking around in the back of your head that you could maybe reopen this thing one day? Yes, I've I've always wanted to. It's been... Since, since it closed and since we've actually moved into it as a house, I've had it in the back of my mind to open it. We've actually made an attempt in like 2008 or so. I got a group together. We're going to make a, a local club and we're going to open the ski hill. And I was going to rent the, the property to the club very cheap and just get it open. And that kind of fell through and never went anywhere. Yeah. And I, I don't think anyone can blame you, especially anyone who has kids. You know, I have two young children and, and you know, at that phase in your life, it's hard to add things, right? Because you have a lot going on. The kids are busy. You want to spend time with them while you have them. Uh, but your kids are a little older now and, and you know, times change. So, so you know, we get to 2020 and, you know, the ski hill is still sitting there and, and you made the decision to reopen it. So w- what happened? What inspired you? Oh, what inspired us to reopen the place? Um, actually, um, COVID-19 is what made the final decision. We were, I've, I said, I always had it in the back of my mind. And we were we used to winter in Arizona. We'd spend uh, January, February, and March in Arizona every year for other business. And we were coming home, and COVID hit, and our pewter business, which is basically souvenirs, went down to nothing. They shut the town down. I mean, it shut the state down. So, like, we're sitting here, two our thumbs. I said, I looked at Wendy. Says, you know what? It's going to be a long summer. This would be a perfect opportunity for us to restore the ski hill. So we jumped in with both feet and <laughs> went at it. Wow. Just thinking about the gravity of what you had ahead of you is, is overwhelming. Just take us into this. What what kind of condition was the ski hill in? Um, it was pretty well overgrown. The lifts were gone, like the rope toes, all the poles were literally just collapsed and gone. The shacks were gone. So it was uh, it was a major undertaking. You know, we looked outside and says we got we got a lot of work ahead of us. <laughs> <laughs> so so the the lodge you said the lodge had been repurposed to a bar so i'm imagining that building was in good shape and, and in fact it sounds like that's your home so um d- did you did you have to modify that at all add a ticket booth add a rental section like what did you have to do to get the lodge ready to accommodate skiing uh we had to add we did remodel a little bit in the one side for the rental shop but other than that, it was pretty much turnkey, though that was, the chalet was. You know, it was a little bit small because our house is upstairs, you know, so we're using the lower level currently for the chalet. 
And eventually that's going to probably have to change because we're busting at the seams down here. Mm, okay. That's, that's good to hear that the, the people are, are taking to, and we'll talk a little bit more about that traffic and the reception in a bit. Um, so, so snowmaking, you mentioned the hill had snowmaking. Was any of that infrastructure functioning or intact? Um, part of it was. We have uh, this. We have a drilled well here, a large drilled well. That was still fully operational. And there was pipelines up there that were operational, but it turns out I realized that the modern snowmaking couldn't handle the, it couldn't handle the pressure of the um, modern guns. You know, we need a lot of PSI in those. The pipeline I have could not handle it. And I did not have a booster pump, so I could not get the water to the top of the hill. So I had to invest in a booster pump. And all I had for snowmaking here was two old school um, SMI 320s. Okay. And fortunately, I, I, you know, I knew a lot of people in the business. I started talking with uh, 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 Bob Werzer, who belong, um, actually was part of Norway. And they were very nice. And they actually let me bower some of their snowmaking guns. So that got me oh, wow. through starting anyway. So it got me, got me rolling. And I purchased some uh, Aricos now. So that got me. That's where I'm currently standing right now with some Aricos and my snowmaking system I have. Do you have, uh, are those mobile guns or do you have tower guns? Uh, mobile. And it, did you have to redo all the pipes? Yes. Actually, we, for the last, for the first winter, this last winter, we ran fire hose. So it was quite a daunting task. Oh, wow. Every time we wanted to move the snow guns, we were running thousands of feet of snow, um, fire hose. Um, we are <sighs> currently in the process of getting all new pipelines put in so they can handle it for next year so we don't have to haul those hoses around. And are you doing that yourself? It sounds like you said your son has an excavating business and you have access to some equipment. So is that something you're hiring out or are you keeping that in the family? Uh, we keep in the family. We do everything ourselves. I've yet to hire hardly anything that's been done here. I've restored mm. all the lifts myself. I've cut all the trees with myself and my son and some friends. And have your, have your children uh, inherited that work ethic, that mentality? Yes, they have. I have... Two kids that are workaholics just like myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the the snowmaking. I mean, how you know? I know the the price of certain materials, raw materials, expensive right now. Is that pipe? What's the what's the cost of snowmaking pipe look like right now? Is is that something that is uh, is, is going to be a reach for you, or or is or is that a is the labor the big part of that? Um, snowmaking pipe is, the pipeline club is very, very expensive. Fortunately, I know a, a guy that's got a fab shop and some engineers that work for him. And the pipe that I currently have that was not able to handle the pressure turned out to be just some of the fittings. And he's helped me out and we're going to be able to reutilize most of our pipe. We're just changing something on the ends. I'm having them take care of that for us. And then we just got to install it, which we'll do ourselves to save the money and get it in. So I mentioned in the intro, you have a half dozen runs. Is the plan to get piping up all of those, or are you just going to start small and add as you can? Um, we're going to add a couple major pipelines in, and we'll run hoses for a while till we can eventually get the whole place pipelined in. Do you think you have enough guns now? Are you happy with your amount? No, I do not. I still need some more guns. I'm, I'm that's, We're in the process of working that. We're working with some other hills and companies right now on, on that itself. You going to stay mobile, or you like tower guns eventually? Um, with this small hill, we're going to probably stay mobile. Mm-hmm. That's the plans of right now, not to say in the future we may go with towers. All right. So let's talk about the lift system. So you you had a whole bunch of lifts. It's a very classic Midwest hill with a lot of surface lifts. Take us through the lifts that you had and what kind of condition they were in. 
Okay, well, I'll start with the rope toes. Uh, the rope toes, like I said, were pretty much, there wasn't much left of them. It was just uh, the engine room and uh, the poles, which were pretty much laying on the ground. You know, so what I did is uh, we tried to use as much of the old school equipment as possible. The lifts are actually ran off of like 1940s truck rear ends. Oh, wow. And they have um, electric motors to a clutch to the truck rear end. Uh-huh. And uh, the, all the shoes on the towers were wheels with spindles. And I redid all that stuff and used the original equipment from back in the 40s. Oh, wow. We went through and took them all apart. New bearings, new grease. I had the electric motors refurbished and reused all the old equipment. We had to put new poles in for towers and we built new tow shacks. But you're actually skiing on 1960s lift technology that's refurbished to work today. And how many rope toes do you have? Uh, we currently, ha- I have two of them fully restored and when we're all done, there's going to be four of them that will be restored. Okay. And we have a, a 1967 Hall T-Bar. Wow. So, so it's amazing that they were still there and that you were able to get them working. What was it? Was it the kind of operation where once you figured out one, you could apply those same lessons to the others or, or is each one quirky and a little different as far as the rope toes go? Uh, they're actually a real similar setup. You know, they were designed by the, whoever designed them back in the day, you know, and I actually have blueprints from 1971 or 1960, some for some of these, they still have all the little blueprints for the things. And I said, they were kind of, kind of cool looking at them because they were put together by kind of like an old farmer does. They just weld stuff together to make these things. And that's how they did it, you know, but it's very functional. They work. Wow. That's really cool. And then the T-Bar, as you mentioned, it's an old tall T-Bar. That's a company that is no longer by name in business. It was absorbed. By Doppelmeyer. Um, so, but you did a beautiful job restoring it. There's some pictures on LiftLog, and I'll put some pictures on the article that accompanies this podcast on stormskiing.com. But talk about the process of restoring that T-bar. Um, that was um, that was a little bit of an undertaking. We uh, took the drive motor off, had that sent and had it refurbed, and I just went and got a, a lift, and we went through each tower separately, checked all the bearings, the bushings, greased everything, took it all apart, cleaned everything up, painted it all, and got it operational again. I had the wire rope inspected and fortunately it, it passed inspection, you know, but I'd kept it greased over the years. So, which was a good thing. The T-bars themselves, those needed some work. They needed some refurb on them. And here's a crazy story. I was, uh, this kind of tells you that this was meant to be is we had just gotten done taking the T-bars all apart. And I got a phone call from Camp 10 ski area and he was congratulating me that I'm working on Paul Bunyan, going to restart. He's like, I hear you have an old Hall T-bar. And I said, yes, I do. And he says, do you need parts? And I says, yes. He says, well, I happen to have a gentleman here that has a truck full of Hall T-bar parts. Wow. And he goes, do you mind if I give him your phone number? And I said, oh, definitely. <laughs> so the gentleman calls me and he shows up here the next day. Sure enough, he pulls in with a truck and a trailer just full of Hall T-Bar parts that match my exact system. Wow. And it turns out the guy driving the truck that had the parts was a retired engineer for Hall T-Bar. Oh, wow. And here he is on my property. <laughs> you know, what are the odds of that? That Right there was a sign saying, Paul Bunyan needed to reopen. <laughs> so he hopped in the side-by-side with me, and we, he kind of went through and gave me a, inspection, a pre-inspection and kind of helped me out with uh, looking at the systems and checking over for me, you know, and sold me the parts that I needed. Mm-hmm. And, and was he available as a, as a consultant if you got stuck on any mechanical stuff or, or just helping you understand? Yeah, he said he, anytime I had any questions, he'd call me, you know, call him, feel free to call him and stuff, you know, and 
And I also am able to get some parts from Doppelmayr. They still do have some NOS stuff, a little stuff in stock there, a little pricey through them, but because of this fact you can't get it no more, they don't make these, you know, but. So has, uh, has the gentleman who sold you the parts, has he had a chance to come back and actually ride this old T-bar? I know he has not rode it, but he was here last summer and sold me a couple more used yeah. T-bars. <laughs> so it sounds like uh, sounds like you've restored then three of the lifts, and then you said you had his, you had four rope toes. One of those went parallel to the T-bar. There was one on a beginner hill, one that served right. a hill over next to your tubing operation, and one that served some steep runs. W- which one of those have you brought back, and what's next? Um, our next is the one that's parallel to the T-bar. Um, I actually started restoring that last year. and never got it finished. We're going to finish that one up this summer, and then we're going to restore the one all the way over towards the tubing lift. That one's getting done this summer also. And the, the tubing lift, what do you have over there? Um, we have a handle tow mm-hmm. that services the tubing lift. We had it installed last fall. Okay. We got it operational but never really fully got it open last year. We ran into a couple of snags. You know, I know the skiing. I don't know tubing. So we had a little bit of quirks with that, but we're going to have that fully functional by next year. Well, what inspires you to start the tubing? So that's a that's a pretty popular and growing add-on for ski areas. And, and from my understanding, it could be quite profitable once you get it set up. Yeah, actually, my sons, both my boys talked me into that one. Oh, cool. Um, like I said, they ski, they go, they, do, they go tubing a lot of different places, and they talked me into it. You know, So we started putting it in, and obviously never got it finished. But I think it's going to be real well. It was well-received. We had a lot of phone calls for it. So I think it's going to be a real good addition to Paul Bunyan. So let's talk about your trail network. Obviously, you said it was pretty overgrown. I, I think it's it's hard to appreciate just how fast Mother Nature takes itself back. So what were you dealing with? How, how, how big of a clearance job did you have? How big did the trees get in there? Just take us through this, what, what you had to deal with to get these trails back to, to skiable condition. Um, yes, Mother Nature does take stuff back over. Um, some of our hills, you would swear there was never a run there. Wow. Um, growing right over. Um, so we had a walk through, we ribboned it off. And fortunately, my boys are in the construction business. You know, actually, my oldest son is, owns a construction company, and I had access to excavators and dozers and all that stuff. So on days he wasn't working, we had it here. We got a group of guys together with some chainsaws and started cutting and pulling stumps and plucking and working on it. We cut down, oh gosh, thousands, literally thousands and thousands of trees. Some of these trees were already had, you know, 18, 24 inch bases on them. It's amazing how wow. fast it goes over. Wow. Yeah, crazy, you know, and some of the runs we kind of kept clear because we had this as, like I said, my kids race motocross. So we had a full two mile motocross track uh-huh. going through the hills and through okay. part of the woods. So we kept some of the hills still where we kept them cleared and moat. So those didn't grow over, but not all of them. So in the in the spirit of self-labor and doing things yourself, did you have to hire people or did you just bring your buddies out and they helped out and then you opened the bar for them? Yeah, um, there was a lot of that. Yeah, um, but we did hire a little bit, but majority of this project was done between our family and we had some volunteers come out. We did as much as we could ourselves. So you kind of had a chance to, to redo things and start over. Did you stick to the original trail network or did you change it at all? Uh, we stuck We stuck to it just as it was. We had people come out when we were open and says, oh, my God, I'm, you know, I'm back in time. You know, they came here and it was pretty much the same old Paul Bunyan that it was, you know, but now that was the first half of season we were open and we did add a little shoot in for this winter mm-hmm. for the last password season. And now this summer we're going to 
change the place up and add more runs and make it different. Oh, yeah? What do you have in mind? Uh, we're going to change up the, which would be our lookers left on our hill, um, adding more runs in, some more shoots. We're okay. splitting one of the runs in. We're going to put a permanent uh, slalom course hill in and stuff like that, terrain park. Oh, wow. Where Where is the terrain park going to be? Uh, we haven't fully decided that yet. We have a couple different locations picked. Okay. What What, what are the leading candidates? Um, It would be on the new area, okay. which was the old, it used to be called, the, the, the run was used to be called Suicide. Okay. Um, kind of crazy. We have a small hill. And we have these big, scary names for runs, but um, <laughs> that's where the on the the old suicide slope is going to be where the slalom course is, and somewhere in that vicinity is going to be the um, the train park. It's near the tubing area. Okay. Yeah, I'm looking at your 1992 trail map right now. So, so suicide is, is, is you have not op- reopened that trail yet? No, we have not. Okay, but you plan to this coming winter. Correct. Okay, and then and then to the skiers' right of suicide was a trail that on this map I'm looking at was called Ski Trail. Are you going to reopen that one as well? Um, yes. Well, right now that interferes with the tubing run. So we may move the tubing hill. We have a different plan for the tubing run off to the, not even on that map, so that we can utilize more skiing. I want to, I want to expand as much skiable acreage as we can and put the tubing hill off to the side somewhere. Looking long-term at the potential, and it's it's hard to tell exactly from Google Maps, but is there potential to sk- to expand beyond that original footprint, your trail network? Uh, not a whole lot. You know, like I said we're a really small hill, um, but there is some areas we can go off to the left a little bit, but there's not a whole lot of room. We have to use what we have. So that's where we're going to put in little shoots and trails to make it more interesting to ski. I, I've heard rumors that you were considering cutting runs off the backside. Is there any truth to that? Uh, I mean, there is one spot we could possibly do it, but we'd have to add another lift in there. And I don't know if it'd be worth it for the size of the hill. So I, as of now, there's probably not a plan to go in the backside. It, what's the vertical drop like back there? Is it, is it comparable to the front? Yes, it's comparable to the front. It actually kind of shorter because there's a road back there. Mm. But do you own that land already? Yes, we do. And, and, and as you think about, you know, you have all these classic lifts that you've restored. Are you happy with the surface lifts and the lifts that you have? Would you ever be interested in a used chairlift or something like that? Or do you like the low maintenance and the sort of simplicity of surface lifts? I like the simplicity of the surface lifts. Um, not to say we would never put a chairlift in here, but as of right now, it's like we're keeping it old school and the, the, they're really embracing it. It's amazing the people that come here that old school, they think it's so cool, the hang on tight rope toes and, uh, you know, the old T-bar, you know, they just think it's really cool. Yeah, no, the the, the Midwest and rope toes, is, as I said when I was talking to Rick Schmitz, he, he said he, his opinion is that there's no better lift, type of lift for the Midwest than a rope toe because it's simple. You grab it, you're up and down, you can do laps, and, and it's they're very reliable. Yes, they're reliable and they're, and they're, and they're fast, you know, and, and they, actually the kids absolutely love riding them. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. even some of the adults do, you know, it's just, it's. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, just got to watch your gloves. You, you probably yes, have a you good, do, yeah. good side business in glove protectors there. Um, yeah, so, we designed our, one thing I did for the, for speaking of the glove thing is, um, um, obviously the bunny hill, we don't have it that way, but like our, the lift alongside of the T-bar, mm-hmm. um, actually you, the, the waiting area is elevated from where you load. So you can actually push off and ski down, have some speed coming in mm-hmm. so you can grab the rope on a move when you're moving. Oh, it makes nice. a big difference in your gloves. And same way with the uh, one that services the expert run, mm-hmm. you can actually ski into that thing, get halfway up the rope, to grab on the rope and go. So your gloves <laughs> never stuck to the rope. Oh, that that's beautiful. That's really, really smart. How about, uh, you mentioned the beginner area. Um, rope toes can be tough for beginners. Would you ever consider maybe a carpet over there? 
Um, yeah, we looked into the carpet, but the very, very expensive. Um, it's crazy what they charge for a carpet. Um, so I don't know if the future will hold that at Paul Bunyan. Yeah, maybe someone else would have to be selling one or or like a granite. Well, peak. that way, yeah. But even used, yeah. they're very, very expensive, you know. And I don't know if they're warranted here. And I saw some of the other hills that have them, and they're they're actually very slow. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, another option would be a handle toe, but I don't know how well that is for beginner areas either. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So, how about a groomer? What what did you did you still have a functioning snowcat, or did you have to acquire one? Um, actually, we had we had a 1969 Tucker. Okay. The old metal tracks was still uh-huh. here. I'm actually in the process of totally restoring that right now, but I had a, I had to purchase a, a snowcats, and I got on the network and looked around and stuff, and I ended up uh, actually I cold called a bunch of hills, and Granite Peak actually called me back. Okay. And I went. And those guys are awesome over there. I went over by those guys, and they actually sold me three LMC 3700Cs. Oh, wow. Two of them were um, really nice shape. They maintained their stuff very well over there, and I got a, a freshly rebuilt Triflex power tiller with it. Mm-hmm. And wow. the, the third snowcat runs and operates, but it's a little tired and stuff like that, but it's great. So if I need parts or whatever, but that's where I'm sitting on right now. And they gave me a really good deal on them. Oh, wow. That, that's, that's a really good fleet for a hill of that size. Oh yeah. Yeah. I am really set up in the, uh, the, the grooming department. So are, are you able to, do you do all the grooming yourself? Um, I do a little bit, mostly my son, my oldest son that's in the excavating business. That's right up his alley. He pretty much keeps his place meticulous. Oh, that's that's beautiful. In that tucker, are, is that just a showpiece, or do you hope to actually use that? Uh, that's actually going to be utilized. Um, it's being nice. restored. It runs good. Um, the rope toe paths, we have some areas that those snowcats will not reach, and we struggled with that last winter. We were out to with shovels trying to keep some of those places nice, but we're going to actually use that for grooming some of the smaller areas. Yeah, it makes sense. I, I was uh, up at Mount Pleasant of Edinburgh, which is a small ski area, in Pennsylvania and I had the GM on this podcast and he has a 1970 something Tucker and he still uses it. He'd used it the morning I was there and he said that for the natural snow trails, it's a lot better because it's not as heavy. And, and for the, with the modern cats, you need a lot more base. He said, so he said yes, the Tucker is really good for certain areas. Yes, it is. I know that with the, with the modern, like those dumb LMCs I have, they, if you only get like six, eight inches of fresh snow in the beginning of the year, they that, that's not enough. They just tear up into the dirt. Or that tucker, you could actually roll that stuff down and, and keep that snow in smaller areas and tight areas. That's great. Beautiful. How, how's the rust level on it? Is it is it in good shape still, the body? It's in excellent shape. It was pretty much garage kept. It's got, it, needs, it needs some work, don't get me wrong, but we're going to actually strip it down in the process of that and then get it repainted and restored as like new again. Oh, that's beautiful. Can't wait to see that. So you mentioned that you had to modify the bar a little bit to make room for rental gear. I think this is this is the kind of expense that when knuckleheads like me think they want to o- open a ski area, they don't think about that, right? Like all these fixed infrastructure costs. So, so what did you have to do to get a fleet of rental gear in? How, how many pairs did you have to have? How many different sizes? Just take us through that process of establishing that part of the business because that's a, that's a pretty capital intensive piece if you think about what one pair of skis costs yeah that that was actually one of our bigger expenses and <clears throat> i saved a lot of money behind the scenes by doing a lot of stuff ourselves so we put a lot of our capital that we just that we had set aside for this project into the ski equipment and as far as um what we chose um through a friend of mine i got in contact with the k2 rep and we decided to go with k2 for well i always ski k2s in my life so i just liked them so we went with those guys and um, I ended up purchasing a hundred pair of K2 brand new equipment. And I wasn't sure on sizes, what I needed and stuff like that. So I kind of let those guys help me choose. 
So they set me up with a, a real nice selection, and they pretty much on the market. It worked out pretty well. You know, we kind of favored more smaller kids. We do have a lot. We have more of a kids area, you know. But yeah, we ended up getting all brand new K twos and absolutely love them. Their, their boots fit great. The skis are awesome. Tons and tons of compliments on our yes. rental equipment. That's why I didn't want to chintz on a rental because you come in to go skiing, you want quality equipment, you know. Yeah, and you know that that's that's such an important part of it for a small ski area like this because I imagine you have a really big constituency of learners, right? People who are coming there for the first time. So, so just talk about that a little bit. Like, how do you approach getting people in for the first time and making them comfortable and like helping them fit their gear? Just how, how do you go about that whole process? Well, um, as far as like to get them set up and ski like that, my, my son, Michael and his girlfriend, McKenna, they manage the shack, I mean, the ski shop for us. And they're instrumental in that part, you know, just helping with the kids. And it is you're right. It's a lot of beginners. So we'll actually sit there and help fit the boot, fit the skis, and we'll bring you right on the hill and teach you how to ski. Mm-hmm. You have, uh, you hired some instructors? Michael and McKenna. Yeah. My son and his girlfriend both are, they're, they're instructors. They manage the ski shop. Plus they also teach. And we have some other ones that help out. Our ski patrol helps out a lot with teaching. And so you break this down for us as far as labor goes, because that's obviously the biggest running expense that most scariers are going to have. How much do you rely on volunteers if you do at all? And and how 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 big of a staff does it take to keep this thing moving? Um, we do rely on a, a, there's a couple of volunteers that do help us out. Mm-hmm. But as far as the lift operators and stuff like that, it's all we hire them. And there's I think we got like six or seven employees that operate the hill on a given basis, a given day. And, and how about the patrol? Is that volunteer or do you pay them? Um, that's about the ski patrol volunteer. We um, have uh, our patrol director ha- just happened to live in a town just next to us in Townsend, Betsy Pop. She's our patrol director and her, her whole family's patrollers. And then myself and Wendy both went and got certified. I was certified back in the day, but I got recertified so that we always have patrollers here. So because we're always here. So that gets us an extra patrollers, you know. So as you as you look at the labor market, Vale raised their minimum wage to $20 an hour. They do have one scary in Wisconsin. It's, it's quite far away from you, Wilmot, um, down there near the Illinois border. But how has, uh, how has the changing labor market affected you over the last two winters? And, and you know, a lot of scariers had problems staffing up. Did you have issues staffing up last year? Uh, no, actually, we did not. Um, like I guess, fortunately, we live in a, a, the community we live in, there's a lot of retired folk up here. So we have a, the community was so excited to have this, they were begging on our door to help. Yeah. Um, so we have a lot of Retired gentlemen that run lifts for us and help out. So it's actually really easy for us here, fortunately. As we expand, I'm not sure how that's going to continue. But uh, How about insurance? Is is that a prohibitive cost? Is that expensive? Uh, yes. Um, skiing insurance is not cheap. Mm-hmm. What was fortunate for us is we've already, we already had commercial property insurance because we ran the bar. Mm, okay. So that was already covered. Um, the building was already insured. We had liquor liability already. So all we really had to do was add on the skiing part of it. Mm-hmm. So yes, it's very expensive. It was an add-ons, but the other insurance, a lot of the insurance is already in place. Mm-hmm. I know when my parents ran it back in the day, this place was sat dormant all year. It was only ran as a ski hill. Mm, okay. So they had to incur that insurance year-round for just the ski season. Mm-hmm. So our little ace in the hole there was the fact that we had quite a bit of the insurance already in place. Mm-hmm. You didn't have any zoning issues. It was already set up for skiing. There's no no neighbors that didn't that, that tried to fight to come back to the ski area. Nope, none whatsoever. We were already zoned as, as a ski hill. Everything was all in place. Our neighbors were all for it. This whole community was for it. 
so you, you had this giant task in front of you. you. You know, you had forests growing up on the runs. You had lifts riding back into the mountain and you, you brought it all back. And it's, it's just, it must have been such an amazing accomplishment. Just how, is there a way to quantify the time and energy that you invested into getting this thing operational? Um, yeah, you, you, you never can count sweat equity, but yeah, I, I don't know. It was, it was awesome. I, I would do it all over again five times. You know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't count the work at all. I don't, it's only work if you don't want to do it. Yeah. And we just had so much fun with this project. I, I haven't worked that physically that hard in a long time, and I had more fun doing that than I've had in years. How did you break up the – because there's so much to do. How did you sort of break this into tasks? Who did what? Who was in charge of what pieces of it as far as the family goes? Um, I pretty much ran the whole thing. My kids filled in when they could, um, but I broke it down and I did did the projects kind of one step at a time, one lift at a time, and did it according to what had to be done before the snow flight. <laughs> you know, it was kind of a it was kind of a hard to plan because I, I wrote a list of planning. I want this done by that time, and that didn't last very long because there's so much to do. It was just very overwhelming, but we got well, it done. Wendy, what was your role? Uh, feeding them <laughs> and stuff like that. But I did help outside when I could, but we have two other businesses that I had to keep running because he didn't work in the manufacturing. So I had to step up and do that, which I haven't done, you know, making the pewter and stuff. So, I mean, it all worked. We just did what we all had to do. So, so it was a big family effort and, and you have a lot of other things going on and we have COVID going on, which complicated everything. It, it you know, but you did it. How did that feel? I mean, just to to get the lift spinning and, and just to stand there and say, holy cow, we got it done. <laughs> yeah, it was very um, emotional the first day seeing people come here. We didn't know what to expect on our opening day. They filled this place. They filled the hill. We ran out of rentals. Um, it was amazing, honestly. And to say that we did it as a family is a huge accomplishment Family is everything to me. So being able to do it with my two children and my husband and I, it was a wonderful feeling. Like we did this, guys. Look what we did. <laughs> and and you, you said the public reception was strong on that first day. Has that been sustained? Have they supported you and showed up? Yes. Every single weekend, we are sold out of ski equipment. Do you keep adding to it? Yes, we do. Yeah, we added on a, a, a fleet of snowboards just last winter. Oh, cool. And, and this past winter, you also brought back night skiing. What, what inspired that? Um, I, that was kind of um, that was me because I, I love night skiing. It's yep. my favorite skiing. Um, I, I like the faster snow and stuff and crispier and stuff. But, um, yeah, we brought back night skiing. I had, that we had to start from scratch on. I had to put new utility poles in, and we buried thousands of feet of underground wire to make that happen. Um, but I utilized it. I did it with my snowmaking at the same time. So what I did is I, when I was installing the wiring for the lights, it was also a snowmaking setup. Oh, that's cool. And, and, and so did you light the whole hill? Is it hundred percent night skiing? It's a hundred percent night skiing. Wow. And what are, are you, uh, I know Wendy, you mentioned that, that the weekends, they still fill up. Are you weekends only, or do you operate during the week as well? We do operate during the week during, um, the Christmas break holiday were open for those whole 14 days and we were sold out every day then too. And then after the Christmas break holiday, we're open Wednesday nights, Friday nights, Saturday, Saturday night, Sunday. 
do you think there's any potential potential to expand that in the future or, or are you really organizing this as a family business because I, I you know for example here in new york there's a, a family-owned ski hill called platicill and they're open friday saturday sunday to the public and then they do rentals mountain rentals during the week and they'll do those on monday and thursday but the owner leslie he tells me you know we we take tuesday wednesday off because you know what we're a family business and we want to give our employees a break. And so we're, we're not going to be a seven-day opera, operation ever. Do you have the same mentality or, or are you just sort of seeing how it goes and you'll adjust as things come? Pretty much as long as TJ and I own it, I think it'll be ran as a family business. We will stick to the hours that we have. Um, not, we will open up if a school group's coming or, or a group from Boy Scouts, whatever. I will open up on a different day for them. But other than that, I, st- I want to keep it a family-run business. And I don't know if the, this area can support during the week. Um, this is a tourist town. And on the weekends, the place is busy with the cabin owners, so we have customers. But during the week, there's not, not a lot there just but the locals. So I don't know who would support it during the week. But night skiing works out well because on Wednesday nights, the kids don't have sports and stuff, and they all come out skiing. So, yeah, sounds like it's gone really well. I mean – it's such an inspirational story. When you when you think back to March 2020 and you have an overgrown hill in your backyard and you fast forward just two years later, you know, you've really reestablished this as a functioning ski area. You know, you have uh, it sounds like some really loyal skiers. You have a lot of momentum it is, you know, how nervous were you doing this and how surprised are you, if at all, that it it worked out as well as it did? Well, when we first started, I didn't know what. I, I had a lot of naysayers and I had a lot of people standing behind me. Um, I, feel, I, I, in the back of my mind, I knew it would work, thought it would work, you know, but, you know, I guess you can't win if you don't play. So we went at it and it's been a dream of mine, but I, it's, I think it's going to be, it's going to work out great. Yeah, I think it's going to be wonderful. I, it, it's the greatest thing for me. I mean, the smiles on our faces, us as a family, even our employees, it's always smiling and everybody's happy. I think it's going to be a great thing. And I think it's going to stay being successful. You know, I, I talk to a lot of scary operators and, you know, a lot of them seem, seem a little stressed. Like there's a lot going on, you know, a lot of things break. You're dealing with a lot of crowds, a lot of weather. It seems like you have a really positive attitude about this. And, 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 and I don't know what's behind that exactly. Maybe it's, it's this uh, strong work ethic you have. Maybe it's it's just sort of uh, the personal connection. What, what do you attribute it to? What you know, it, this seems to be a great source of joy to you, and, and that's that's really cool. Like, wh- why do you think that is? I, I don't know. I, I think from my point about this, this is one of the first projects and things I've ever done that I didn't go into a business thinking that I'm going to make money and get rich on it. I went into this for the love of the hill, for the love of the sport. And this is a hobby. This is like, this is a hobby to me. We're doing this for fun. And I want to keep it that way. And this business does not have to support our family. As long as obviously you don't want it to lose money, it has to, it needs to sustain itself. And I think that maybe that's why it's so joyful to us because it's, it's fun. It's a hobby. And, and have, you, have you been able to do that so far? Just keep it at least break even? Yes. Yes. If it, if it continues to go on and, and I understand that in the beginning, it's a, it's an influx of all this is all new. Let's check it out. But, um, it's definitely, it's definitely going to work. It's, it will work. We're very confident in that one. So the United States has more 
lost ski areas, defunct ski areas that it does operating once. It has a lot of operating once, about 470, 480. Uh, but there's hundreds and hundreds of little hills like Paul Bunyan. If someone wanted to rescue one of these and bring them back, what advice would you give them? Where should they start? Um, well, that's a tough one. Um, well, first of all, you have to really you, you have to love the sport and love what you're doing to, to make this happen. It's definitely a lot of work. It's a labor of love. I said I never I had a lot of fun doing it, but it's definitely a lot of work. Um, I would recommend you go go for it if you have it in your blood. If you know what you know, if you especially knowing if you know the business, I go for it. I think it's the best. Very rewarding. And you know, you you talked about the folks who work in the ski industry and how helpful they were, and and how helpful Granite Peak was, and Greg Fisher, the general manager over there, has been on this podcast, and he runs a great operation. And you know, just talk about that community, especially in the upper Midwest where there's just so many ski areas and, and how important that was to helping the family, you know, be able to tap into some of the resources that maybe you wouldn't have had otherwise. Uh, that's actually was very huge. I, I, I'll tell you what, the ski community is very, very, it's hard to explain. I got phone calls from all the other Hills out of state, out of state, all yeah. across the country, welcoming me, think this is the greatest thing. Um, it was it's overwhelming the support I have from some of the other hills. They were calling me, offering any help. You have any questions? It, it's been excellent. This the ski community is very tight knit. They're awesome people, and it's I don't know. It's hard to explain. Yeah, I, I think that there's an acknowledgement from this, the bigger mountains that mountains like Paul Bunyan are super important to just getting people interested in the sport because you know if. You know, as you said, you have a you know small community there, and if a kid's in Lakewood and they grow up with that hill, they're probably going to grow up skiing. And if it's not there, they may not grow up skiing. So, you know, it's there's there's a very integrated network. I think that there's more ways than ever that tie these ski areas together. One of them that the Indy Pass recently launched is an Allied Resorts program, and what that does is it would allow it allows pass holders at Allied Mountains to add on an Indy Pass at a discounted price, which is $199. And it comes with two days at Granite Peak and Powderhorn and Pine Mountain and Spirit Mountain and Lutzen and some other ones in your area. And then it would give Indy Pass holders discounted tickets to Paul Bunyan. Is that something that you're aware of or that you've considered? Is that Indy Pass Allied program? Uh, yes, I, I was aware of that. I was actually very interested in that. I was going to contact those guys. But this, um, these... But going back to your thing about this, the small hills, I, I think they're um, very, very good for the ski industry, the communities. Um, going back to your thing about people, I, I look at the people that grew up skiing at Paul Bunyan. And now that I've opened this, they've been calling me and stopping here that grew up skiing here that actually ended up in the ski business, in the industry. Um, uh, Bob Werzer grew up skiing here and he ended up uh, managing Ski Brule, Norway. He was uh, skiing over in uh, Austria, <clears throat> managing a hill over there. Um, there's just story after story of people that grew up at little bitty Paul Bunyan and ended up in the industry. So let's finish up here by talking about your season passes and your lift tickets. Uh, lift tickets are just $25 a day. Your season passes last season were $230. I'm not sure if you started selling them for the 2022 to 23 ski season yet, but, but talk about those numbers and, and how you landed on them. And if they're about the right numbers you think to create a sustainable, at least to the, at a minimum break even business. Um, yes, we um, we haven't not released our passes yet, but we wanted to keep their prices very reasonable. We're bringing back 
inexpensive skiing. And I think those numbers worked out fine. Um, we're 25 for an adult, $20 for a junior, just 17 and under. And night skiing was uh, 15 bucks. And as of right now with the numbers, with the list we have and stuff like that, it was very sustainable. We're happy with that. We're probably going to keep them. We're going to keep them the same for a while, as long as we can. And how have you been able to deal with, I know you only have two seasons going so far. How have you been able to deal with just the weather? It's, you know, we've had a little bit of late starts to winter and, um, you know, some spring thaws. Have you been able to get a nice, nice season in? Yes. First year, we only had four weeks, five weeks, but that was due to my uh, snowmaking problems. But uh, this last winter, we had an excellent season. We were open before Christmas and we skied all the way to the middle of March. Fortunately, I know we're going to have years that aren't going to be so well, but. I know you have plenty of cold up there, even if you don't get much snow. Uh, do you have a target opening day? Like what, what would be your ideal season at Paul Bunyan? I'd say our ideal season would be the first week of uh, December, at least. And if we can get into the somewhere into March, you know, the first week or two of March. Beautiful. All right. Well, it's uh, it's a terrific story. I, I really thank you so much for sharing it with us. I really hope to get out there at some point and see the place for myself. Everything I've seen online, it looks like you've done just a fantastic job of fixing this up and making it into a little ski area that Wisconsin and the whole ski industry can be proud of. So I thank you very much for your time and I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. We enjoyed it. Thank you for interviewing us. Thank you. That's TJ and Wendy Kirscher, owners of Paul Bunyan Ski Area in Wisconsin. Really an incredible story. And what stood out to me the most was how they just did it. Got to work and made a hard thing happen. What so many lost ski areas need is a hero like the Cursors, someone tireless and committed and willing to just do the work. That's what I love about the Midwest. No one works like a Midwesterner. Wendy, TJ, thank you very much. I really enjoyed that. And I really admire what you did and wish you the very best of luck with it. Thank you all for listening. Coming up soon, more Midwest with the general managers of Snow Trails Ohio and Perfect North Indiana. Also have some big timers coming your way in June. Joe Hessian, CEO of Snow Operating, which owns Mountain Creek and Big Snow, the indoor ski area in New Jersey that just reopened after a seven month closure due to a fire. I also have a conversation scheduled with Bill Rock, the chief operating officer of Vail Resorts West Region which includes all five Colorado mountains and Park City. Plus, I have the general manager of Gore Mountain, New York. And that is just the lineup for June. I have podcasts scheduled through November with the general managers of Bogus Basin, Sun Valley, Brundage, Monarch, Sundance, and Vail Mountain, plus Point Resorts CEO Stephen Kircher. Plus, I've got three new ones to announce to you this week the general managers of some of my favorites, Nubs Knob, Michigan, Bromley Mountain, Vermont, and Pat's Peak, New Hampshire. Sign up for the email list at stormskiing.com to get those conversations when they are live. Paid subscribers do get access to those three days before free subscribers. So please consider upgrading to a paid subscription which also gets you thousands and thousands of additional words of ski industry analysis and news every month. Also, please follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at storm ski journal until next time. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester and I will talk to you again very soon.
The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production. 